8. That's shorter. The bowls hang low. Sometimes. And you've got to go pickin'. Pickin'. Stupin' hath way of yon the hot sun beaten down on yon neck and back. Since the war the planters have tried all sorts o' labor. But bars no white man that's in pick cotton. They get blinding headaches and fall sick. I reckon their skulls are too thin or maybe it's jays because they're not black. Seen that it's harder if o' mulatto th and a full-blood negro. Illustration, way down yonder in the cotton field. Typical picking scene. Working under a blazing sun and a haze of heat. Without any shade in sight. Brown brothers. You would make all the negroes cotton planters. Not have all the cotton crop in the hands o' the negroes. Saw. The old man answered. And the trade schools would provide after all the workers in towns in the cotton district. And in solid negro towns far'd be room after all the colored doctors and lawyers and preachers. I see your idea, said Hamilton. You would just make the cotton section solid negro. Would you try and be independent of the whites? Member saw. The other answered decidedly. It's jays those no for niggas that are talking that way all the time. Bar is a lot o' talk up north. But down higher and for they south. Or the MOSO the colored people or, they are willing enough to be let alone. Bar is a lot o' talk about a race war, and it might come some time, but not likely f o a good many hundred years, and something will come up to settle it before then. But I'm reckoning saw, that you'll be wanting to make war unless I'll let you go to bed. Bar is a bell, saw, if you'll want anything. I wonder, said Hamilton half aloud, as the door closed behind his host. If that isn't a whole lot more likely to be true than the alarmist stories you read in magazines. The following morning, after Hamilton had almost finished covering one side of the street in collecting the census statistics, he heard the trot of horses' hoofs, and looking up, saw a tall, stern-visaged soldierly-looking gentleman, with iron-gray hair, riding a powerful iron-gray horse. Beside him rode a young fellow, evidently his son. Both reined up when they saw Hamilton. Seeing that he was expected to introduce himself, he stepped forward. My name is Hamilton Noble. He said, I'm the census enumerator for this district. I presume you are Colonel Agrise? Yes, Mr. Noble. The old Confederate leader replied, Ephraim sent me word that you were here, and I received a letter a week ago from the supervisor, whom I have known for some time, telling me that you were a friend of his. I wanted to bid you welcome, sir and to express the hope that we shall have the pleasure of seeing you at dinner with us tonight. Hamilton bowed. I shall enjoy coming. Colonel Agrise, he said, at what hour? 6.30. The colonel replied, we keep early hours in the country. By the way, he added, have you heard anything of this peonage business here this morning? Member sir, the boy answered, I started out with my schedules bright and early. I purpose to hold an inquiry after lunch. The planter continued, You are lunching at Ephraim's of course? Yes. Colonel Agrise. The boy answered, Very well. Was the reply, We will lunch together if you have no objection. Since I heard of your expected arrival I have been looking forward to your visit. Now that you are here, sir, we must make the most of you. Allow me to present my son Percy. Hamilton made a suitable reply, and consulting his watch found that it was almost lunch time. I will join you in half an hour, Colonel Agrise, he said, and shall look forward to the evening with great pleasure. You play a good knife and fork, I trust, said the old gentleman, smiling, as he gathered up the reins, almost good enough to do justice even to southern hospitality, answered Hamilton with a smile. 
The old soldier nodded approvingly. Remember now, he said, as he rode away. We'll hold you to your word. At lunch Hamilton took occasion to remark on the well-being of Town. I was surprised, he said, to find a village so well managed and looked after, and all by Negroes. There's nothing surprising in that, the colonel answered. How could they do anything different? I have shown them every step they were to take, all that they had to do was to continue. You mean they couldn't have done it by themselves? The Negro never has done anything by himself. The old Confederate replied, He has lived as far back as time goes in one of the most fertile and well-watered countries of the world, Africa and he never had enough initiative to rise out of tribal conditions, but he seems to be doing all right now, suggested Hamilton. I hear the Negro is getting to own quite a share of the cotton crop. He has not done so well as appearances would show. The soldier replied, He has learned a few only a few of the tricks of modern civilization and those only outwardly. The few cases of leadership such as that of Booker T. Washington, for instance, are due to the white strain, not the Negro. I thought Booker T. Washington was a pure Negro, exclaimed Hamilton. He is not, was the emphatic reply. In his own writings he states that his father was a white man, his mother was a Negress. He gets his brains from his father and his color from his mother. Do you think that the Negroes will ever marry enough with the white to become all white? Not now. The Southerner answered, It is a crime in many states and punishable with imprisonment. Then what's going to be done? I'm unreconstructed yet. The old colonel said grimly, I think still the Negroes were better off as slaves. They're always going to be slaves. Anyway, whether in name or not. And as for their relation to the cotton crop, you say they are succeeding in it. Perhaps. But did they learn the uses of cotton? Did they develop machinery to clean and spin it? Or devices for weaving? Was it Negroes who worked out the best means of cultivating the cotton or experimented on the nature of the most fertile soils? Not a bit of it. They simply grow cotton the way the white folks showed them. But they seem to be getting a big share of it. I see you've been talking to Ephraim. What good would it do the Negroes if they owned every foot of the cotton land? They would still have to depend on the man that buys the crop and the cotton exchange wouldn't be run for the benefit of the Negro. In slavery days, too, there was someone to take an interest in the Negro and help him. Now he's got to do it for himself, and he can't do anything but go on in the same old groove. You think it was better in the old days? In some ways for the Negro, yes. But it was harder for the people of the South. There was always trouble of some kind in the slave quarters. Before the war you had to support all the old, the sick the children, and the poor workers, under present conditions you hire just whom you want, the cost is about even, and the responsibility is less, now, he added, lunch being over, if you've finished we'll go and see what this peonage business island Ephraim, he called, is that man here, yes, saw, answered the old negro, he's hired, bring him in then, in a minute or two the old darky returned, bringing with him a gaunt, emaciated negro, who cringed as he entered the room. He was followed by a brisk, young mulatto. If you'll please, Massa, said the old preacher, dropping unconsciously into the familiar form of address. This is Peter, young Peter's father. I've seen him before. The colonel said abruptly, Peter, where are you on this plantation? Yes, Massa, what's the matter with him? Ephraim, queried the old soldier. He looks to me as though he hadn't had enough to eat. It isn't only that, Massa said the negro, 
He's been whipped most to death. Whipped, cried Hamilton, startled. Then, remembering suddenly that the matter was not his concern, he flushed and turned to the colonel. I beg your pardon, sir, he said. I forgot. The old soldier, who had been a stern disciplinarian in his time, had drawn himself up indignantly at the boy's interruption. But his immediate apology caused the old gentleman to see that it was just a flash of boyish indignation. So he merely turned and said, let him tell his story. All was born higher during the war. The Negro began, Ossie and Jays remember Mrs. And I've often heard mad mother cry when we was living in Atlanta on trouble come. If only I could go to Mrs. Get to your story, boy, said the colonel. I haven't time to waste. I was brought up in Atlanta, Georgia, and times was always hard. Six years ago I hired out to a lumber man in Florida. Bar were sixty of us hired together. The pay was good. The day we come, we were put into a group of huts with a stockade room, and men with rifles guarded us night and day. I reckon thirty men was shot trying to escape during the years I was bar. Thirty? Yes. Saw. Leastways I know of five, and heard all the rest. Talk about what you know, not what you've heard. Admonished the old soldier. Go on. It was killing work. We had to be in the woods by daylight and stay bar until it was too dark to see. Bar was trouble enough at first but the worst come later. About three years ago a lot of mohuts was put up and the stockade was made bigger. We thought things would be easier as the new men would get all the knocking about. Next week the new crowd came. They were a convicts hired for the job. Excuse my interrupting. Colonel Agarize. Asked the lad. But can that be true? Does any state hire out its convicts to forced labor? Some do. Was the reply. And Florida is one of them. Go on, boy. Flogging started in when the convicts come. And there was no difference made between us and them. We were supposed to be paid. But our pay was always in tickets to the company store and they charged double prices for everything. They never gave us a cent of money. A lot of us got together and decided to escape. But when it come to doing it, only three would go. One got away entirely. One was shot, and all was caught. They took me to the stockade and whipped me ammo as to death. Three days running. The third day all was so near dead that they didn't tie me up. And when, hours later, God did stagger to my feet, they jays pointed to the fields where the hands was working. I heard one o' the guards say, he won't go far, and I hid in the woods, I don't know how long, Jay's living on berries, and at last I got away, I knew I would be safe in Kentucky, the colonel looked at the man closely, I believe you've been a bad nigger, he said, and I wouldn't believe any more of your story than I had to, but it's easy enough to see that you have been abused, and that you need help right now, I'll give you a chance, Peter, your father is staying with you, yes, Saw, Ephraim, the colonel said, turning to the old preacher, put this man on the payroll as a field hand, beginning from tomorrow, but don't send him to the field for a couple of weeks, behave yourself, he added, turning to the peonage victim, and you'll be all right here, the negro thanked him profusely, and went out, his wretched frame showing up miserably in the strong sunlight as he passed by the window of the dining room, but that's worse than any slavery I ever heard of burst out Hamilton indignantly. Peonage, answered the old veteran. Oh, yes, much worse. And it still goes on. There were several hundred stockades in operation last year, was the reply. And that's a fair sample of their work. Illustration, how most of the Negroes live. 
type of shack usually seen in southern states, though the owners are not always in poor circumstances. Chapter the I.I. Ho goes on the tramp although he realized that his lines had fallen in pleasant places for the enumeration work. It was not without a certain sense of satisfaction that Hamilton entered up what was marked on the map as the last house, and started for the supervisor's office. He was a day ahead of time, and was congratulating himself on his success in having covered the entire district in the appointed time. In order to make his record as good as possible the lad thought he would get an early start and be in the supervisor's office before noon, thus emphasizing his punctuality. Accordingly it was but a little after seven o'clock when he was in the saddle and on the road, knowing from experience that the highway made quite a circuit to reach a little group of three houses, which he had already enumerated. Hamilton struck out across country, using a little footpath through some woods, at that early hour of the morning he was not expecting to meet anyone, and it was a great surprise to him when he heard voices. A moment later he reached a small clump of trees, and came right upon three men, one with a teapot in his hand, standing up and leaning a little forward as though ready to show aggressiveness to any intruder, the other two on the ground, one sitting, and one lying half asleep on some boughs carelessly thrown down. As Hamilton was still in his enumeration district and felt that here were some people who might not have been registered, he pulled up. Morning, boys, he said ingratiatingly. Howdy, the impromptu cook replied, and waited for the boy to go on. I'm the census taker for this district, the boy continued, and I knew this was a shortcut across the fields, but I didn't know I should find you here. Inform the gentleman, Bill, spoke the traveler who was lying down that we were equally unaware of the unexpected pleasure of this meeting but that we would have been better prepared to meet him had he sent a courier to announce his coming. You heard him. The first speaker supplemented jerking his thumb over his shoulder. I heard him all right, answered Hamilton, dropping immediately into the spirit of the thing. But tell him that I was unaware that he had left his town residence for this convenient and airy country house. As I live, an intelligent reply was the response in tones of surprise, and the speaker sat up on his rough couch. To Hamilton the situation was a little difficult. There would be no trouble in merely exchanging a few greetings and then passing along on his journey. But the boy was above all things conscientious, and he could not forget that these men were probably not entered upon the books of the census, and that now, on the very last day of census taking, they were in his district, and he knew well enough that if he broached the question it would not be favorably received. However he thought he saw a way out. If you have a pannikin of tea to spare, he said, I'd enjoy it. If you like to put up with what we've got, join us and welcome, the tall tramp said. All right, Hamilton answered. I will, permit me to do the honors, said the second tramp. This is Hatchet Ben Barkley. The gentleman sitting down is Jolly Joe Smith not because of his humor but because of his powers of persuasion and I am Harry Down, very much at your service, better known as the Windy Duke, interjected the tea maker, who had by this time returned to his task of preparing breakfast, and was busy frying slices of ham on a piece of stick over the hot wood coals, I'm Hamilton Noble, the boy answered in return, and I've just got through taking the census for this district, I've got all the names in here, he added, tapping his portfolio, and now I'm going to the supervisor's office to turn in my reports. I am afraid your census will be incomplete, said Wendy. For, so far as I am aware, 
the rolls of the United States will be lacking the names and distinction of this gallant little company. Haven't you been listed? Asked Hamilton, glad that the subject should have seemed to come up in so natural a way and mentally congratulating himself on the success of his device to secure the friendship of the crowd. Nary a list, said Hatchet Ben. The rustlers of the Ringling Circus told us that they had been enumerated four times, once for every week they played, and that not a blessed one of the census men would believe they had been taken before, but they cut us out entire. Well, I guess I had better take you right now, said Hamilton. I've room on the census sheet for a few more names. You can count me out, said Hatchet Ben. I'm not looking for that kind of fame. Don't you think it's fair to the country to let it know who you are? What's the census to me? The other said defiantly. I calculate a country that doesn't give a fellow a living doesn't care much about his name. But you're getting a living. Just the same. Answered Hamilton. And you're an American. Anyhow. Aren't you? New York State. The tramp replied. And you? Asked Hamilton. Turning to the orator of the party. I'm an Oxford man. Answered the Windy Duke. Classical tripos if you know what that means. I do. Answered Hamilton. But why? And he stopped. You were going to ask me why I prefer to wander a field rather than be cribbed and confined within narrow walls. I am but one of many. An educated man without any knowledge of how to use his learning. Do you care for Greek? There are some clever scenes from Aristophanes that I can give you. Or if you have a taste for satire I yield second place to none in my interpretation of Juvenal. On the pre-Cadmine alphabets I am in my humble way quite an authority. But these magnificent talents, he added with a self-depreciatory smile, do not enable me to run a business as successfully as a Greek fruit peddler or a Russian Jew vendor of old clothes. You could teach, suggested Hamilton. Only my friends, replied the scholar, to teach requires pedagogy and numerous devices for improving the youthful mind. I do not greatly admire the youthful mind and it bores me. I am informed that I also bore it. Hence I prefer rather to wander than to teach. I do not claim originality in this role, there have been scholar gypsies before this. The phrase sounds better than educated hobo, but the meaning is the same. And you? Queried Hamilton of the third speaker, plain American. The other said simply, born and raised in Ohio. Not a Yankee, not a Westerner, not a Southerner, nothing. Just plain Middle West American. Well, suggested Hamilton, I think you chaps ought to let me put you down in the schedule here. We need white men in this country badly enough in all conscience, and we might as well make the strongest showing we can. Two Americans and an Englishman will help the average just that much. Part of the white man's burden, he added with a laugh. If you put it that way, said Hatchet Ben, I calculate after all I'm elected for one. Anything I can do to put down, even on paper, these foreigners that live on nothing and drive a decent man out of a job, I'll do. I'm down on this jabbering mob from the South of Europe being dumped down here by the hundred thousand every year, and you can take that straight from me. It's a little curious, said Hamilton, noting down the facts as they came up in conversation, not wanting to work directly upon the schedule for fear of rebuffs, that two of you should be Americans and one an Englishman. Somehow, one always thinks of an American as making good, not tramping it. Nearly all hobos are Americans, Hatchet Ben explained. There's a few English, and a few Swedes, lots of races in this country you never meet on the road. Trampdom, said Wendy, is a most exclusive circle. For example, you never saw a Jew hobo, did you? Mumber, Hamilton said, never.
and you're never likely to. Hatchet Ben interjected, there's no money in it, not unless it is organized and run on a percentage basis. There are a few French Canadians, but no real Frenchmen on the road, and the Dagos never take to it. I wonder why? Hamilton queried, I purpose writing a monograph upon the subject of the nationality of the Hobo Empire. The Windy Duke broke in, and therein I shall enlarge upon my theory that the life of a tramp requires more independence and more address than any profession I know. I find that usually those who adopt this unromantic gypsy career are the men who will not drop to the level of the horde below them and who consequently take to the life of the road in protest against the usage of an ill-arranged social state. That, for example, is the condition of my two friends here. Would you mind my asking what made you take to the road? Said Hamilton. Turning to the first speaker, not at all, Hatchet Ben replied, it's a very usual story, I'm a steel worker by trade, and when I was working I was reckoned among the best in the plant, what did you quit it for, asked Hamilton, Slovaks, the man answered, every year or two the Pittsburgh operators would get together and pretty soon gangs of foreigners would start coming to the west, they seemed to know where to come, and started work the morning after they got there without even seeing the boss, but that could hardly be, I should think, said Hamilton, that would be importing contract labor and they would be stopped at Ellis Island, not much fear of that, the steel worker answered, the operators keep men in Europe just training the foreigners what to say, these men come over in the steerage with the immigrants, advance them, if necessary, the amount of money to enable them to land, buy their railroad tickets at this end, and all the rest of it, dangerous business if they got caught at it, they are paid to take chances, the other replied, then, when these foreigners come, they know nothing about the scale of wages in America only that the pay is so much larger than anything they can get in their own country, and they live even here in so cheap a way that no matter what wages they receive they can put money aside every week, the boss doesn't see any use in paying them at a high rate, when they work just as well for small, and down goes the wages, but they get a poorer grade of labor that way, objected Hamilton, I shouldn't think that would pay, they make up for it by increase in the power of machinery, by giving a man less and less to learn and more and more of some simple thing to do, in a way that ought to be good, too, the boy persisted, for the more a machine does, the bigger wages the man who runs it gets, I'm not a machinist, the tramp replied, and even if I were I should be in competition with the Swedes all along the line, being just a steel worker, I stood for one reduction in wages because they promised to give me a better job, but this supposed better job was just bossing a gang of these foreigners, and they got after me because I took every chance I got to talk union to these men, showing them how they could just as easily get more pay than they were being given, that didn't suit the company at all, so I was fired, and they put me on the blacklist, and you couldn't get any more work there at all, not there or at any place in the district, or, for that matter, in any place in the United States unless I gave a false name, steel working is my trade, and I don't know any other, the men that run that trade in the United States refuse to let me work at it, very well, then, if the country won't let me earn my living by working for it, it'll have to give me a living without, but I'd go to work tomorrow, if I had the chance, not me, began Jolly Joe. As soon as the tall tramp had finished, I'd sooner be a hobo th and anything else I know. In the first place, I'm not like Hatchet Ben. I don't like work and I don't do any unless I have to. And then besides, 
there's more exercise for my talents in this business. If you think it isn't a trick to rustle grub for three hungry men, just you try it. And while I've been on the road for nearly six years, I've never had a dog set on me yet. How do you mean? Asked the boy. There's always grub on a farm if you know the right way to go about getting it, was the reply, and there's very few places I ever go away from without some bread or a hunk of ham or a pie. Lots of chickens get lost, too, and you find them wandering about in the woods, belonging to nobody, and there's plenty of nests that hens lay astray that the farmers never could find. If you watch the bees closely, there's nearly always some swarm that's got away and made a nest in a dead tree. The trouble is that most people are too busy to lie still all day on watch, and those that aren't busy don't know. But you don't rustle tea that way, said Hamilton, touching the tin pannikin with his knuckle. Wendy looks after that. I am not without some small means, explained the Windy Duke, but my income would not permit my living in any sufficiently attractive city in a manner suitable to my desires. By adopting this vagrant life, however, I am able to relinquish a part of my very moderate annuity to my sister, and still retain sufficient to share up with my fellow adventurers when times are hard or Jolly's persuasive tongue is not quite up to the mark. But you didn't tell me, said Hamilton, turning to Jolly Joe, why you started going on the road. You said you didn't like work, but where had you tried it? I'll make the story short, was the reply. I'm a railroad section hand, and was looking to be made a foreman on a section near New York. I had a pile of friends among the men just above me, and I believe I would have worked up pretty rapidly. You would be president of the road by now. Jolly, put in the Duke. I'd be going up. Anyhow, the other replied. But one day an order came along from headquarters changing the makeup of the gangs, and next week I found myself the only American on an Italian gang, under an Italian foreman. All of us were shifted around the same way. The foreman knew a little English not much and he tried to give me orders in mixed English and Italian. I told him I wouldn't do anything I wasn't told to do in straight American. And when he started in jabbering and abyssing me with every bad name he'd heard since he landed. Why? I gave him a hammer and So, just as Hatchet Ben here was driven out by Slovaks, it was a gang of Italians that gave me my throw down. I tell you America's all right for everybody but the American he doesn't stand a show. That sounds hard for the American working man, the boy said. But there must be a lot of them working somewhere. They're not all tramping it. The backcountry farmer is an American nearly every time. Hatchet Ben replied. The foreigners don't get so far away from the cities and towns. I don't know why. I think I know the reason of that, volunteered Hamilton. I heard some census men talking about it and one of them had spent a long time in Italy. He said that while it was true plenty of the peasants worked in the fields, they usually lived together in villages and went to the fields in the morning. Then the farms are very small. Our average sized farm here would make five or six of them. And so the village idea can't be made to work in this country. And the Italians won't stand for being separated from the nearest neighbor by a mile or two. I can quite understand that. The Englishman said thoughtfully, it would be far less pleasant living in this carefree fashion of ours if one were doing it alone. It may be rather pleasant. Hamilton admitted slipping back into his pocket the necessary details for the schedule which he had secured from the three men while breakfast was being prepared. But I think a day or two of it would be enough for me. And I certainly wouldn't like your end of it. Jolly. Well. The other replied. As Hamilton strolled over to his mare and lightly swung himself in the saddle. 
If I hadn't done some rustling yesterday you would have gone without breakfast this morning or at least, without this kind of breakfast, and mighty good it was, the boy replied, I don't know when I've enjoyed a meal so much, I'm ever so much obliged, boys, goodbye. The incident gave Hamilton plenty to think about on the rest of the ride to town, and he found himself genuinely sorry not to have a chance to see more of the three. He could not help admitting to himself that under proper conditions they would be just as fine citizens of the country as anyone could be, and the phrase, nearly all hobos are Americans, kept running in his head. He reached the supervisor's office just as a young fellow, but little older than Hamilton himself was stepping out. He noticed Hamilton's portfolio and said, a little mischievously, the boy thought, how many, if I may ask, 2206, answered Hamilton, rightly supposing the question to refer to the number of people he had enumerated. The other threw up his hands, I pass, he said, you beat me by nearly a hundred, and he laughed and went on, while Hamilton continued on his way to the supervisor's office, the boy exchanged greetings with his friend who said, I heard you talking with that young chap who just left, when you were coming into the office, do you know him at all, not in the least, replied Hamilton, and he quoted the brief conversation, there's quite a story about that case, the supervisor said, settling himself back in his chair, and though I'm as busy as an angry hornet I'll stop just long enough to tell you, when I was picking the enumerators for the Gullyville district that's away at the other end of the section from where you were I found an unusual number of applicants, at the examination, however, there were two who stood head and shoulders above the rest, one was the principal of a village school, and another was the chap you saw, his name is Wurtzy, and he gave his occupation as a student and his age is 19, I didn't think he looked even as old as that, commented Hamilton, yes. He's 19. As I was saying, the choice seemed to lie between these two. Wurtzy's paper was a few points better than the other. Indeed I think it was one of the best tests turned into me from any center. On the other hand, the schoolmaster was a graduate of one of the large colleges, had lived most of his life here and in the mountain districts of the state, was prominent in church affairs, and knew everybody. That was why, when I sent the papers to Washington, I recommended him for appointment instead of the boy, of whom I knew nothing except that his examination paper was slightly the better of the two. Yet the boy got the job. He did. The supervisor answered. The government rejected my recommendation, and I got a letter from the director stating that Wurtzy should be appointed on his showing rather than the other unless I knew something against him. I suppose that was fairer, Hamilton said thoughtfully. But I thought that matters of that kind were left to the discretion of the supervisor. Generally they were, but still there were reversals in a good, 